بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله Alhamdulillah, this is lesson 82 in the Radiant Light covering the life of the Holy Prophet And for many, many weeks we have been discussing the Battle of Uhud as one of the most pivotal moments in the life of the Prophet and in the lives of the companions and when we look at the historical effects, our lives too because we are here today because of those experiences and those sacrifices. So we don't go into a very sharp transition outside of Uhud. We're still talking a little bit about it because the Battle of Uhud had a number of after effects that were still felt uh, among the Muslim community in Medina. It also led to effects outside of Medina and not just among Quraysh, it also had effects on the outlying tribes and people who were both allied with the Prophet ﷺ, as well as those who were not. So we'll be discussing some of those things today. And in the timeline of the seerah, we are basically at the end of the third year after Hijrah. And before we talk about the fourth year, of the Hijrah, we have to talk about what happened immediately after the Battle of Uhud. We know that the forces of Quraysh left Uhud and did not return to launch another attack on the Muslims. But as they were leaving, it was far from certain that they wouldn't try to come back and launch another attack. And this is why immediately after Uhud, the Prophet ﷺ sent forth Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu with others to go and track them, Quraysh, and to keep watch at a distance to make sure that they don't try to return and mount another attack. And this expedition was known as the expedition of Ghazwatu Hamra al-Asad. Ghazwatu Hamra al-Asad. So as Abu Sufyan and the forces of Quraysh were making their way back to Mecca, as they're making their way, they begin to discuss among themselves about what they should do. Should we go straight back to Mecca or should we try to go back and attack again? That was a conversation among the forces of Quraysh. So as the Prophet ﷺ went back to Medina after Uhud, he organized a group of Muslims to go out as forward observers, to go out and very discreetly track the movements of Quraysh and watch them from a distance to make sure that they were not reorganizing themselves to launch another attack on the Muslims. So the Prophet ﷺ, once he was back in Medina, he said to the Muslims, uh, only those who participated in Uhud can volunteer to go for this. And there's a wisdom in that, because we know that right before Uhud started, 300 people 
who were among the Muslims deserted right before the battle, among the hypocrites. So he said only those who had participated directly in Uhud are allowed to volunteer on this expedition. And so 70 of the Sahaba volunteered. And these 70 were all people of Uhud. And many of them were still suffering from wounds they suffered at the battle. Many of them are still limping and still bleeding from those wounds, yet they volunteered to go out once again right after Uhud, the day after. Seventy of them volunteered. And the Prophet ﷺ appointed as their leader Sayyiduna Ali Karramallahu Wajha. He was the Amir of this group. And they went out the day after Uhud. It was the 16th of the month of Shawwal. And the Prophet ﷺ instructed Ali to go out with these forces and camp at an area called Hamra al-Asad. That's the name of this expedition. So he goes and receives the instruction from the Prophet ﷺ, see in the distance what animals they're riding. Go out there and observe what animals they're riding. He said if they're riding horses, know that they're going to come back to Medina. But if they're riding on camels, know that they are going back to Mecca. So when Sayyidina Ali and those volunteers went out to Hamra al-Asad, they observed at a distance that Quraysh were riding on camels, not horses. Meaning they intend to go back to Mecca and they're not planning a fresh attack on the Muslims in Medina. The next day, the Prophet ﷺ went and joined those Muslim volunteers at Hamra al-Asad. And not long after this, Allah Ta'ala revealed a verse in the Qur'an praising those individuals who went out and volunteered, even while they were still bleeding and limping and wounded. Allah Ta'ala praised them in the Qur'an in Surah Ali Imran when he said, he says, those who responded to the call of Allah and His Messenger after they were wounded, those of them who do good and are mindful of Allah will have a great reward, a tremendous reward. So Allah praises them. The Prophet ﷺ joined them a day later, and they camped out at this area of Hamra al-Asad for three days just to make sure Quraysh don't try to come back. And three days after, they returned to Medina, all of them, safe and sound. So this expedition doesn't involve any battle, but it still had an effect. It still had an impact. And the impact is not so much on Quraysh, it's on other people. Because as we've mentioned many times before, you, you really have to put yourself in that environment. You have to picture it accurately. If you've ever gone to a small town, you know that it's hard to go unnoticed. You pass through the small town, word spreads, oh, this person's here. If you're going through a vast area like that in Arabia, these outlying tribes and these Bedouins who move from place to place, they notice your movement. So these Bedouin tribes who are outside of Medina, outside of Mecca, in these areas, outside of the battle space, they, number one, know what happened at Uhud, 
They know what the Muslims suffered. They know that Quraysh is going back to Mecca. So they're observing everything from a distance. So by camping at Hamra al-Asad for three days, it had a strategic effect. Because there were Bedouin tribes that would either see the forces of the Muslims camping out there, or they would hear about it later on. And by camping at Hamra al-Asad the way they did, it gave the impression to the Bedouins that the Muslims are still battle-ready. They may have suffered grievously at the battle, but they were not out of the fight. They still had fight in them. And so the Prophet ﷺ used this opportunity to send that message. There were 70 camping at Hamra al-Asad. And the Prophet ﷺ told them to build lots of fires, lots of campfires, many more that would be, than would be needed for a group of 70. What advantage does that give them? Because you have these Bedouins observing from a distance. At nighttime, if they see dozens and dozens of campfires, what impression is that going to give them? That they are far more numerous than they actually are. So while they're only 70, there's so many campfires that the Bedouins at the distance observing think that there's hundreds and hundreds of Muslims who just a day after the battle are camping out here in force, giving them the impression that the Muslims are still in the fight. They still have this fighting spirit and they are battle ready. So this is the expedition of Hamra al-Asad. Now, the question that comes up is, uh, was it possible or was it likely that Quraysh were in fact going to return to Medina and launch another attack? And the answer is, yes, that was a very strong possibility. And they were discussing it among themselves and they nearly returned. However, we see in a story mentioned in the work of Imam al-Waqidi that something happened that deterred them from doing this. So in the Maghazi of Al-Waqidi, there's a report that mentions how Quraysh almost went back to Medina, and in his Maghazi he describes why they didn't. He mentions that as Quraysh were making their way back to Mecca, they were complaining among themselves that they didn't really give the defeat they wanted to give to the Muslims. They didn't achieve any of their actual objectives. And the main objective was what? To kill the Prophet ﷺ. That didn't happen. So they were going back and forth between each other, lamenting this fact. It's narrated in this story in the, in the Maghazi that Ikrima ibn Abi Jahl said, we have to go back and get rid of this problem forever. We have to finish it once and for all. We didn't. But then Safwan ibn Umayyah, who was one of the shurafa of the Qawm, he says, he's not for this idea, he says, we shouldn't do this. Because now they're going to be so filled with anger over what they experienced at Uhud that maybe some of the Aws and the Khazraj who didn't fight will now be geared up to fight. So you won't be returning just to those people who are in the battlefield. If you return, you have to face those people in the battlefield, and there's a good chance you have to fight those of the Aws and the Khazraj who weren't there but who are now upset over how many people lost their lives. 
So this is not a good idea. That was the argument of Safwan ibn Umayyah. And they went back and forth. And they almost went back. But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala set certain things in motion that sealed the deal for them to go back to Mecca and not attempt a second attack in Medina. And Al-Waqidi mentions this. The way they went back to Mecca is because of an individual that casts some fear into their hearts. This person's name is Ma'bad al-Khuza'i. Now Ma'bad al-Khuza'i at this stage in the seerah is not yet a Muslim. He becomes a Muslim later on. But he was sympathetic to the Prophet And he did not approve of the tactics of Quraysh and the mutilation of the corpses and these behaviors that they were doing. He felt this was very dishonorable. This goes against the chivalry that was upheld even by the Jahidi Arabs. So Ma'bad al-Khuzani, he is in the area. He goes to Medina and he visits the Prophet ﷺ before the Prophet goes to Hamra al-Asad. And while he's there, he's giving condolences to the Prophet ﷺ over the loss of his followers. And he said, Ma'bad al-Khuzai said, We heard what happened to you and your companions. You should know that I am not happy with this. I would rather the other group was inflicted with the loss and defeat than your group. So he's expressing his sympathies. And he leaves Medina. And he's making his way back home. And as he's making his way back home traveling, who does he meet? He meets the Quraysh as they're making their way back to Mecca. And he meets Abu Sufyan. And while he's there meeting Abu Sufyan, Abu Sufyan recognizes him as one of the shurafa, the noble people of Khuza'a. And he says, uh, Ya Ma'bad, hearing that he had come from Medina, he said, tell me, Ya Ma'bad, how did you leave Muhammad and his companions? What was their state? Right? He doesn't know. And so Ma'bad, who's sympathetic to the Muslims, he says, you, you really don't want to see them now. They are filled with anger, and those who didn't fight now want to fight. It's almost verbatim what Safwan ibn Umayyah said. Now that's coming from the tongue of Ma'bad al-Khuza'i. Exactly what Safwan was saying. They are ready to fight now. So he repeated exactly what Safwan was worried about. And he said, they are lighting the fire of war. And they're beating the drums of vengeance. And they have made a promise to themselves that they will not enjoy peace or rest until they exact vengeance for what you've done to them. So hearing this, Abu Sufyan says, okay, well, what do you advise me? What should we do? Should we go back and fight them or should we go to Mecca? And Ma'bad says, I advise you to get out as fast as your horses can take you. And when they saw this person, Ma'bad al-Khuza'i, a respected man, he's not a Muslim, saying this, they were filled with fear and they decided, let us go back to Mecca. Let's not try to go back to Medina because after all, now we have the distinct possibility of facing not just those we face in battle, but also those others from the Aws and the Khazraj who didn't participate, who now want to join in on the fight. So they go back to Mecca because of this. Uh, and that's their return. Now in the seerah, 
the ulama reflect on the after effects of Uhud. Uh, how the battle affected the morale of the Muslims and also how it affected the attitudes of Quraysh and the attitudes of the other outlying tribes and Bedouins who heard about what happened to the Muslims at Uhud. So last week we concluded with the discussion of the battle itself and we explored this question a couple of times. Was it a victory or a loss for the Muslims? And last week we outlined a number of reasons why we consider the Battle of Uhud a victory for the Muslims. But those reasons are really looking at the battle from the big picture. You know, we have hindsight to come to that conclusion that ultimately it was a victory. So that is the conclusion we make in hindsight. But for those Muslims who are returning to Medina, we have to look at what they were feeling. Right? We have to go to Medina and see what were the feelings on the ground among those who just came back. In the big picture, it was a victory. However, it is clear that the battle had a very damaging effect on the morale of the Muslims. It also had a damaging effect on their reputation. This reputation was affected, meaning the Bedouin tribes who heard about the outcome are now shifting in their views about the strength of the Muslim community. The classical Sira works mention that because of what happened to the Muslims at Uhud, people were not fearing them as they used to. They no longer feared them the same way they feared them after Badr. Likewise, we read in the Sira how when the Muslims returned from Uhud, many among the Yahud, the Jewish communities and the hypocrites became more overt in expressing their animosity to the Muslim community. Now they have less fear because of what happened at Uhud. And the Muslims themselves were also quite worried. They received a very clear victory, Fath Mubin, in the Battle of Badr. But in Uhud, things took a very disastrous turn. And for this reason, many of the Muslims were quite worried. Has Allah Ta'ala deserted us? Where were the angels in this fight? Has Allah left us to our own devices? Have we lost the support in the unseen realm from the angels? And would Allah support us again if we were to go into battle another time? Would we also lose the, the next round and the round after that? Now, of course, Allah Ta'ala is with them the whole time. But this was an imtihan, it was a test. They have to learn their lesson after Uhud that they cannot disobey the Prophet and seek after worldly gain. That was the lesson they had to learn in Uhud. And after Uhud, we know that large sections of Surah Ali Imran were revealed to the Prophet explaining these lessons learned from the Battle of Uhud. The importance of obedience to the Prophet and the importance of having one's niyyah secure in seeking the afterlife and Allah's pleasure, not seeking after worldly gain. So this was the basic after effect upon the Muslims and their morale, upon the Bedouin tribes. Now we come to the other expeditions that happened immediately after Uhud, going into the fourth year of the Hijrah. We have a Sariyah, 
we noted the difference before between the ghazwa and the sariya. We said that when you pair these two words together, the ghazwa is a battle or an expedition in which the Prophet ﷺ is present. While the sariya is the expedition where he's not present, he sends others out on the expedition. So we have, after Uhud, a sariya, an expedition known as the sariya of Abu Salama to the tribe of Banu Asad. There was a man from the tribe of Tay who came to Medina to visit some female relative of his who uh, was married actually to one of the Sahaba. And while he was staying with them, the family, he mentioned an individual by the name of Qulayha al-Asadi. Now, if you've, you, some of you may have heard that name before. Qulayha al-Asadi is an individual who would later claim to be a prophet himself. And he is one of those 30-odd Dajjals mentioned by the Prophet ﷺ in the hadith as one of the signs of the last day. 30-odd Dajjals would appear claiming to be a prophet, but there is no prophet after me. So Tulayha would later proclaim himself to be a prophet. You have three major ones, Tulayha al-Asadi, al-Aswal al-Ansi, and the most famous of them, Musaydim al-Kadhab. So Tulayha is going to be one of those. So while he was staying with them, he mentioned that Tulayha al-Asadi and Salama, the sons of Khuwaylid, went with their people to Banu Asad calling for a war against the Prophet So this news got back to the Prophet that these individuals were trying to rouse people up to go and attack the Prophet and the Muslim community. So when word gets back to the Prophet he goes and summons Abu Salama anhu and says to him, Go out with a sariya, a force, an expeditionary force, and I make you the emir over this force. He takes the liwa, the battle flag, and he ties it for him and sends with him 150 of the sahaba, both of the muhajirun and the ansar. He tells Abu Salama, go forth until you reach the lands of Banu Asad and attack them before they round up their forces. So he's sending him for a preemptive attack. Because if you don't do that, they're going to amass, amass more people, more weapons, more troops. And it, this puts the Muslims at a very distinct disadvantage. When you know the enemy is about to attack, the best defense is an effective offense. So he sends them forth, 150 strong. Abu Salama goes out with these 150 companions on the first day of Muharram in the fourth year of the Hijrah. So now we're at the fourth year. Everything up until now has been in the third year. But we're now in the, the, day of, we're now in the first day of Muharram, the fourth year of the Hijrah. So they had a guide to take them in a more indirect route to Banu Asad so that they would not get detected. And they traveled very quickly there because they wanted to make sure they arrive before any spies or scouts give word to Banu Asad that they're approaching. So they're traveling very quickly to get to Banu Asad to launch this preemptive attack. They get to this area. Uh, it's like a watering area where they have wells and they have the camels getting their water. And when they're there, 
they managed to capture some of the livestock belonging to Banu Asad and three of their slaves. The rest of the people who were there at the watering area basically scattered. They fled. They go back to the tribal area where Banu Asad is staying, and they tell them what happened. Now, by the time Abu Salama and the Muslim forces reach the territory of Banu Asad, words already spread. They got their things and fled in all different directions, avoiding any greater conflict. So there was no loss of life in this. But it scattered their forces and showed them that the Muslims are still a force to be reckoned with, and we will not tolerate people uh, conspiring to come and attack us without a response. So they go there, and the people had fled. Abu Salama, he sets up camp. And he divides the warriors into three groups. One group was with him, and two other groups went into different directions. And because the people left so quickly, they managed to acquire lots of ghanima, livestock, cattle, and sheep, and the like. And they returned back to Medina safely, without any bloodshed and no loss of life. And the seerah says they were gone for two weeks. So Abu Salama, radiallahu anhu, he returns back with the forces to Medina, and as soon as he gets back to Medina, one of the wounds he suffered at Uhud begins to flare up. And we can presume that it was some kind of infection. And it flared up, and he died very shortly after returning to Medina uh, a couple months later. And we know the story of Abu Salama passing away, and then the great, the great loss and grief that his wife, his beloved wife, suffered as a result of his loss, we know that she comes to marry the Prophet When she was consoled at her loss, she was instructed to say, uh, to Allah we belong and to Him we return. Uh, oh Allah, reward me in my affliction and replace him with, some, with someone better. This was the advice given to her. And she says, who can be better than Abu Salama? Because he was very beloved to her. And we know that she came to marry the Prophet ﷺ and became one of the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen. And she was, he was replaced by someone far better ﷺ. So this was the Sariya of Abu Salama to Banu Asad. Not long after, in fact, a day after, another Sariya went out in another region. And this is called the Sariya of Abdullah ibn Unais to go and deal with an individual known as Ibn Nubayh al-Hudhali. Ibn Nubayh al-Hudhali. On the fifth day of Muharram, the Prophet ﷺ sent out Abdullah ibn Unais to Sufyan ibn Khalid ibn Nubayh al-Hudhali. This individual was in a place not too far from Arafat. So, the Prophet ﷺ sent Abdullah bin Unais to this man on a very special mission. And the reason why he did this is because word got back to the Prophet ﷺ that Ibn Nubayh was planning to set people out on a mission to assassinate the Prophet ﷺ. So he says, who will deal with Sufyan al-Hudhali, a man who defames me and reviles me and intends to inflict harm upon me. 
Abdullah ibn Unais radiallahu anhu volunteered for this mission. It was a one-man mission. And Abdullah ibn Unais has never seen Ibn Nubayh al-Hudhali. So he asks the Prophet sallallahu how will I recognize him? How will I know when I find him? And the Prophet sallallahu says, when you see him, you will be filled with fear and dread and you will be reminded of shaitan. Imagine that description. Someone, when you see him, you're reminded of shaitan. Imagine what he looks like. And so, this is a very long story in the seerah. We're giving you the synopsis here. Because it's a long story of how Abdullah bin Unay set out alone to go all the way there and disguise himself so he wouldn't get caught, to ingratiate himself and gain the trust of those people so he could get close to Ibn Nubayh and carry out this mission. And when he, before he goes, the, uh, Abdullah bin Unais asked the Prophet وسلم, the request, uh, Ya Rasulullah, allow me to say and do things that I disapprove of. Right? So for the sake of the mission, he may say or do things that keep him from being detected. And he was given that permission. So the gist of the story is that Abdullah bin Unais eventually gets there and he's pretending to be a man of Khuza'a. We just talked about Ma'bad al-Khuza'i. So he's pretending to be from that man's tribe. He pretends to be of a Khuza'i who's not a Muslim, who's not allied with the Prophet in any way. And he says that when he got there and saw Ibn Nubayh, it was just as the Prophet said. He was filled with fear and dread. He had a lot of anxiety upon seeing him, and his face reminded him of shaitan. Not to say that that's what shaitan looks like, but the first person that comes to mind when seeing him is none other than Iblis himself. So he's so afraid that he can't pray the way we normally pray. Think about it. If you're in disguise, you're purporting to be from Khuza'a, and not from the Muslims, how are you going to go make wudu and pray? And where are you going to do it? If you go and offer salat, you've given up your identity. They'll know exactly who you are. So the narration mentions that Abdullah bin Unais was praying while walking and while sitting. So imagine you're walking, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen, under your breath, and you just, Allahu Akbar, in a very subtle ways, very subtle in hina, you know, bowing postures that are um, indiscernible to others, but you're doing it to do as, the motions of prayer as best as you can while walking and sitting. Uh, and by the way, this is something that uh, was done later on. And we learn in our fiqh, how one can pray if they're sick or injured by many of these narrations. We have the narrations of other Sahaba much later on in Islamic history who were praying while sitting, just doing these slight motions because uh, if they had prayed properly, they would have been imprisoned, tortured, and killed. This happened with Sayyidina Anas radiallahu anhu uh, during the reign of Banu Umayyah when you had these tyrants ruling the Muslims, they forced the Muslims to come for Jumu'ah 
and they would take oaths from people, specifically Sahaba, that they didn't pray Dhuhr uh, or Asr at home. And that's because some of these rulers of Banu Umayyah used the, the minbar as a political pulpit where they would show up drunk, uh, reading poetry and ranting about this one and that one. And they would extend the Jum'ah up to Maghrib time without even praying Jum'ah. So many Muslims would either pray secretly or they would have to pray while sitting in this Jum'ah service making these motions because if they prayed in a very clear, overt way, uh, there was a very strong chance they would have been taken and disappeared. And we have narrations in Sahih Bukhari and Muslim from Anas in which he describes that manner of praying and that's how we learn it. But we have Abdullah bin Unais doing something very similar way before that. And from those uh, narrations we learn how do you do the inhina, you know, the slight movements if you're unable due to fear or if you're unable due to some physical injury or sickness and the like. Anyhow, he's praying a kind of Salatul Khawf. It's a kind of Salatul Khawf. And he's the first to do this, by the way. And you see from that a very clear example of the Sahaba making their own ijtihad, their own uh, independent judgment about the best way to do something even though that way hasn't been described explicitly by the Prophet ﷺ. So he was the first to do that, and we'll see another example of that uh, quite soon. So he gets there, and he manages to gain the trust of Ibn Nubayr by pretending to be a man of Khuza'a who wanted to join in on the attack. So he gained his trust, and he stayed with him for some time until eventually he had that golden opportunity when the two of them were alone, he struck Ibn Nubayh down and then he managed to, managed to flee. He says in his after action report, when he describes what happened, that he traveled by day and by night until he got back to Medina, traveling in a way that would uh, allow him to go undetected so he wouldn't get caught. He eventually makes his way back to Medina after all of this, and when the Prophet ﷺ sees him, he is so happy and he says, Ah, what a victorious face this is. And Abdullah bin Unay says, What a victorious face is yours, Ya Rasulullah. So he was gone for 18 days, the narration mentions. So this was a sariya, a one man sariya. It wasn't an expedition with a large force. This happened in the fourth year of the Hijrah. Now, as we've said before uh, quite a number of times, uh, we often look at the Seerah as a series of battles. And there's a reason why the earliest works of Seerah are called books of Maghazi, the books of battles, the accounts of, of battles, because much of the Seerah is about this battle, this expedition, this Ghazwa, this Seriyah, and then you have events, you know, in between those. But obviously the entire seerah is not just battles. There's other things going on, both in Medina and outside of Medina. There's also da'wah. There's also teaching. There's education. There's spreading the message of La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. So we see in this stage of the seerah that there's also an attempt to give da'wah to people and educate them outside of Medina in the outlying areas. 
And that brings us to a very pivotal story that happened in the fourth year after the Hijrah. And it is a story known as the story of the emissaries to Ar-Raji'ah. What's an emissary? A messenger. A messenger, an envoy, someone who is representing someone else. This is the story that happened in the fourth year after the Hijrah, where ten companions were sent out as envoys representing the Prophet for the purpose of da'wah and education, but who were double-crossed. This happened in the fourth year. So what happened is, uh, in this timeline, a branch from the tribe of Hudayl, and we just mentioned Hudali, a branch of the tribe of Hudayl went to two other tribes shortly after the killing of Ibn Nubayr. They went to these other tribes and gave them an offer. They offered them a large quantity of camels if some of their own tribesmen would go to Medina and pretend that there are Muslims among them for whom they're requesting companions to go and teach them the Qur'an and Salat and the other teachings of Islam. And the, pl- the plan is that if they can get these Sahaba to go as teachers, when they get there, they're going to double-cross them, ambush them, and kill them as revenge. It was all a trick. It was all a ploy. So they go to Medina, these tribesmen, in return for all of these camels. And they go to the Prophet ﷺ. They say, Ya Rasulullah. They're pretending. There are Muslims among us. So please send us a number of your companions who can teach us the religion and recite the Qur'an to us. They wanted as many Sahaba as they could get to carry out this plot. But we have a total of 10 companions who volunteered. And they were under the leadership of the Sahabi Asim ibn Thabit radiallahu anhu. Ten of them go out with the intention of da'wah, of education, teaching these uh, purported new Muslims how to recite the Qur'an, the meanings of the Qur'an, how to pray, the other ethics and teachings of Islam. And they go out. When they reach the area where these tribesmen were, and it's a place called Hada, and it's between an area called Rusfan and Mecca, so it's going south. When they get there, they were double-crossed. The narration mentions that they reached, they reached the well, known as the well of uh, Ar-Rajir, hence the name of this uh, incident. They get to the well, and they find that they are ambushed by a hundred people. Ten to one. Ten to one. Ambushed by a hundred people. When they saw 100 people emerge with their bows, they realized that they were double-crossed. And they also realized that they can't put up an effective fight when it's 10 to 1. So they found a hill nearby, and they beat a hasty retreat ascending up this hill so they could defend themselves on higher ground. Now, you have to understand a little bit of a backstory to this Asim ibn Thabit radiallahu anhu was at Badr. And at Badr he killed a man whose wife was named Sulafa bin Sa'ad. And 
news got back to him that after the battle, that she was so enraged that her husband was killed at Badr, that she took a vow. And she said, I will drink wine from the skull of whoever killed my husband. And she finds out it's Asim bin Thabit. So now she wants to get him. I vow I will drink wine from his skull. She says, anyone who can bring me his head, I will give him a hundred camels. You see what's going on now. Those hundred people who are now attacking these ten sahaba, they're not just attacking them, they're also looking to get his head. So they can get that reward of a hundred camels. So they're on top of this hill. It's, it's indefensible, right? There's no way they're going to really make it out of this. But they're trying their best. And Asim knows what's going on. He knows that this is what's at stake. He doesn't want his head to be severed from his body for it to be a, his skull, uh, a, a wine glass for this embittered woman. So while he's on top of the hill, he makes a dua. He says, Oh Allah, I will not surrender to them because I know that what they're going to do to my body. I will fight to the death. Oh Allah, please inform the Prophet about us and tell him that we were sincere and that we did not die as cowards. And he said, Oh Allah, as I protected your religion in the daytime, bin Nahar, when I was alive, Protect my body at night, meaning when I'm killed. And he means by this, protect his body from being taken by these people so that this woman would get his head and use it, his skull as a wine glass. That was his dua. And so they're fighting these people, a hundred of them, ten to one. They're fighting them with their bows and arrows until they run out of arrows. They fight them with the spears until the spears are broken. They fight them with their swords until they are overwhelmed and out of all of them, out of these 10 verses, uh, 100, all of them are killed except for three. Asim bin Thabit radiallahu anhu was killed in this battle. But they didn't get his body. He was killed in this battle. But as those 100 people are rushing to get the body, a swarm of wasps came, preventing them from going to his body. Imagine a swarm of angry wasps in the thousands, swarming around the body of Asim bin Thabit, striking and going after anybody who tries to get near to his body. They didn't want to get involved with wasps. So they backed away and they said, well, let's just wait for the nighttime because wasps don't come out at night. They're only out in the daytime. So they waited until the sunset. And as the sunset, and they're waiting, out of nowhere, a massive torrent of water, a river, appears. Now you have to put yourself in that position. In Arabia, you have lots of awdiyah. You, know, you have valleys, you have passes, you have tributaries that are dry all year round until the rainy season. And when it rains, they fill up like rivers. Right? Only there was no rain. There was no storm. But this river appears, and not only does the river appear, but it's going uphill, and it takes away the body of Asim bin Thabit, and he virtually disappears. They can't find him. They can't go and pick up his body because of the wasps, 
And when nighttime comes, this river comes and washes his body away, no one knows where he is. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took care of the burial of Asr bin Thabit, protecting and honoring his body, lest it be defiled by these people and that woman. This is, of course, a miracle. This is from the karamat that Allah gave to the Sahaba. And the ulama always emphasize that the karamat of the Sahaba and the karamat that Allah gives to any Muslim, even after them, all of these karamat, all of these miracles are in fact a mu'jiza, a miracle of the Prophet Because that miracle only came to pass because Allah honored them because of their following Rasulullah So really it's ascribed to him in an indirect way. It's because of their suhbah that this honor was bestowed upon them. So out of these ten, all of them were killed except for three. The last three decided that they should just surrender. There's, there's no chance of winning this. And they understood that if they surrendered, there's a high chance that they'll get out of this because most of the time in these situations, if you surrender, those tribes are going to take you and hold you for ransom. And once the family or others pay that ransom, they let you go. So that was the intention. The people who surrounded them also said that if you surrender now, you can get the ransom paid and we won't harm you. So now they're reassured that they won't be killed. So they said, okay. They said, if you surrender, we guarantee you a promise of safety. We won't harm you. So they decided to surrender. They were Khubayb ibn Adi, Zayd ibn Dathina, and Abdullah ibn Tariq. These three, they decided to surrender. As soon as they came down the hill after agreeing to surrender though, they were pounced on by these men and they were tied up. So if you're a prisoner, you don't have to necessarily be tied up, especially if you agreed to put your arms down. But they beat them and they tied them and transported them like animals. When this happened, Abdullah bin Tariq said, This is the first sign of treachery. This is the first sign of treachery. Meaning, this is the first sign that they're not going to keep that promise. They actually intend to kill us. That's what he said. So, Abdullah bin Tariq, عنه, seeing that they're not going to live up to their side of the deal, he, he decided that he's not going to make it easy for them. If they're going to kill us, I'm not going to make it easy. So he refused to stand up, although he's tied. He refused to walk. He refused to move. They try to drag him. He's not willing. And you know how it is if you try to carry someone who's unwilling to move. It's like a huge weight, right? So they decided, well, enough with him. So they killed him right then and there. So that leaves us only with two, Khubayb ibn Adi and Zayd ibn Dathina radiallahu anhu. Now, Zayd ibn Dathina and Khubayb ibn Adi found out that some of the other tribes wanted to purchase them. Why would they want to purchase them? Not to be slaves. 
The tribes that wanted to purchase them were tribes of individuals whom they killed at Badr. So these tribes wanted to purchase them so they could exact their own revenge on them. And so, Khubayb radiallahu anhu was purchased by the tribe of Banu Harith because he killed someone from Banu Harith during Badr. And Zayd ibn Dathina had attacked Umayyah bin Khalaf, the master of Bilal. So Safwan ibn Umayyah purchased him for a very large sum of money because he wanted to kill him for having killed his father. So there's two stories here. What happened to Khubayb and what happened to Zayd ibn Dathina? Khubayb radiallahu anhu was a prisoner of Banu al-Harith for quite a while until they all came together and announced the death date is here, they're going to kill him. So when he was when he knew that they were going to kill him, on that day he asked for permission to take a ghusl, to get some water and take a ghusl. He also asked for a razor so that he could shave his uh, pubic hairs in the, the Sunan al-Fitra, we know from the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. He wanted to prepare himself for his martyrdom by purifying himself in the best way possible. So the hadith mentions that they allowed him to do this and they gave him a razor with which to shave himself. And as he was sitting there with this razor in his hand, a young baby comes up. You, know, you could think of a little toddler, someone who belongs to the tribe that's going to kill him. This baby comes up and he's got a razor in his hand. The mother sees this. She comes and sees this and she freaks out, thinking that he's going to grab the baby and do something, God forbid, with the razor to the baby. And she is absolutely frightened. But Khubayb said, are you scared that I'm going to kill this child? Wallahi, I would never do something like that. And the same mother, and she tells the story. She's reflecting on this much later in history. She says, I have never seen any prisoner nobler than Khubayb ibn Adi. I never saw on anyone as a pris prisoner with such exemplary manners. In fact, I saw him tied up, eating from a bunch of grapes. This is in Mecca. And she says, Wallahi, it was not the grape season in Mecca, and there were no grapes in Mecca whatsoever. Meaning, these grapes appeared as another miracle. Allah Ta'ala sends these grapes to Khubayb and he's eating from them and they come from the unseen realm. So this was another miracle. So this is the day of his death, the day they're going to kill him. And they bring him to be killed and he says, allow me to pray two rak'ahs. So this is another example of the ijtihad of the Sahaba. This is the first time this happened in Islamic history where a person prays two rak'ahs before they're killed as a martyr. He was the first one to do it. He asked them, please allow me to pray. And he went and prayed, but the prayer was not very long. He prayed two short rakahs, and he said, were it not for the fact that you would think I am scared, that I am a coward, I would have prayed uh, much longer than I did. But I don't want you to think that I'm scared of death. Two short rakahs. And Khubayb is the one who started this sunnah of praying two rakahs before being executed. Right before his execution, he made some du'as. He even recited some poetry. He said, O oh Allah, destroy them, slay them, scatter them, and don't leave a single one of them. 
O oh Allah, I do not have anyone to convey my salam to the Prophet He's all alone in Mecca, about to be executed. I have no one to convey my salams to Rasulullah So convey my salams, Ya Allah, to the Messenger of Allah And the hadith mentions that the salams were conveyed by the angel Jibreel who conveyed them on behalf of Khubayb to the Prophet And they killed him. And as right before he was killed, he was reciting poetry uh, where he was basically saying, I don't care whatever manner they kill me uh, as long as it's fi dhatillah for the sake of Allah. And that's how he left this world, radiallahu anhu, after being double-crossed. So that's the ninth of those ten who were killed. The tenth of them, Zayd ibn Dathina, he's also back with Quraysh. And they also waited some time before they executed him. Uh, they wanted to make sure that it became a very public spectacle. They didn't just want to take him and kill him right on the spot. They wanted to make sure that they gather their tribesmen and people and make it a large spectacle so everyone can see it and get their thirst for revenge. So they gathered all these people and he was tied up. And just as they were about to lance him to death, stab him with a spear, Abu Sufyan asked him a question. He says, I ask you by Allah, tell me the truth. Don't you wish right now that Muhammad was in your place and that you are with your family and children? Would you ra- wouldn't you be honest? Wouldn't you rather trade places where he's in this position and not you? Where you could be back with your family and children safe and sound? And we know the answer. These are people of Iman, of absolute Yaqeen. And Zayd ibn Dathina radiallahu anhu says, Wallahi, I would rather die like this than for the Prophet to receive even as much as a thorn prick. If I had to face this just so he could be safe from a thorn prick, I would choose this over a thorn prick for him, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now Abu Sufyan, you know, he later reflects on this event later in his life. They killed Zayd. And later on, Abu Sufyan reflects and he says, Wallahi, I have never seen any leader that was more beloved to his people than Muhammad is with his companions. And these are examples of the sacrifices that they made. And you see that they don't have any sense of loss because they understand this is the true winning. And that sense of, of true winning, given these circumstances, can only be felt if you understand that the hereafter is more important. Right? That this is temporary and that this is a necessary thing I do for the sake of Allah a sacrifice I'm willing to make because the hereafter is real. It's not something that's out there and abstract. It is real. And you see they went forth doing these things willingly knowing that they received the reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's because of all these sacrifices that we are here right now. Whether it's in the battles or in these situations, it was all for the sake of spreading the deen, establishing Islam, carrying the banner of La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, were it not for all of these incidents, we would not be here right now. So we owe it to them 
to honor their memory by saying radiallahu anhu, by saying may Allah be pleased with them. So this is what happened in the beginning of the fourth year after the hijrah. And inshallah we move on in the early part of this fourth year uh, next week, uh, looking as, as things develop, uh, one thing after the other until we get to uh, some other battles and attempts to put out the light of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. هذا والله ورسوله أعلم وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم لا إله إلا الله You got questions? Yeah, Banu Nadir also broke the treaty after Uhud We're going to get into that Right. Right. You only have one Jew who came to Uhud, Mukhayriq, and he was killed at Uhud. Uh, the rest of them didn't go. So the Banu Nadir broke the treaty, uh, and this, the, this is discussed in the aftermath, and that's coming soon. The, the pledging of fealty, uh, we, we don't have the clearest uh, answer to that in the earliest days because we have isolated Muslims in Mecca who were concealing their faith and were unable to make hijrah. We have examples of a few individuals who were outside of Medina who had become Muslim. Um, what we see in the development through the Sira timeline, is that as the Prophet ﷺ consolidates power, the bay'ah tended to be done by the representatives of the tribes. The tribes would send delegates, wufud, and on behalf of their community who embraced Islam in mass, these leaders would go and pledge the fealty directly to the Prophet ﷺ. Uh, and then sometimes individuals from those tribes would also make their way to Medina and formalize it too. Uh, at this stage, we don't have uh, any clear examples of that. That happens much later. Uh, and that is a part of the larger story of the Sirah, particularly how those tribes reacted to uh, the passing of the Prophet ﷺ and whether they considered that allegiance still binding to the Khalifa of the Prophet ﷺ. And from there you get the Hurub al-Ridda, you get the, uh, the rebellions that rose that Abu Bakr had to put down. So there's a very complex uh, tribal dynamic going on and how the loyalty was pledged that we'll be exploring, uh, especially as we get towards the, the Amal Wufud, the year when that became uh, a reality. <laughs>